Hello, Eastside uh, family. I thought that uh, in light of the current situation with the coronavirus and not knowing how long it would be before we would uh, resume services and begin meeting together again, I thought that I would go ahead and prepare some videos and uh, continue to walk through our series of Knowing God together. Uh, the last time that we met, we were in chapter 19 of Knowing God, which is on the theme of adoption, being sons and daughters of God. And so just to briefly uh, remind us of what we looked at last time, uh, he began the chapter just by asking the question, what is a Christian? And he said, a Christian is one who has God as father. Just a very basic definition, but a fundamental relationship that the New Testament describes that in Christ, we are now a son or a daughter of God. And so this is a new relationship. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was common to speak of uh, God's people as servants of God uh, or as the people of God. Uh, but not often uh, was um, were the people of God referred to using uh, the term a child of God, or God as uh, someone's individual father. But that is the dominant emphasis of the New Testament. The dominant emphasis of the New Testament is that we are children of God and we have God as our father. And so Christians are God's children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. Uh, J.I. Packer says in chapter 19, to those who are Christ's, the Holy God is a loving Father. They belong to His family. They may approach Him without fear and always be sure of His fatherly concern and care. He says this is the heart of the New Testament message. And so we have this new relationship as children of God. And he makes the point in the first part of chapter 19 that adoption is is the highest privilege that a believer in Christ can claim. He says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than that of justification, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? Because normally we think of justification as being a crucial, the crucial element of our relationship with God. And he does say, in chapter 19, that justification is foundational and it is primary in the sense that without justification, without the forgiveness of sins and a reconciled relationship with God through pardon, through the work of Christ on the cross, we could have no relationship at all with God. So justification is foundational. It's also primary in the sense that it justification must come first. But he says adoption is a higher privilege in this sense, because justification has to do with our relationship with God as judge. It is primarily legal. But adoption has to do with our relationship with God as father. It is familial. It is a family relationship. And so it's a closer, it's a more intimate relationship. And, and in that sense, that's what he means when he says it is higher. And so it is a, 
a higher privilege, even though justification, we might say, is foundational and primary, and there could be no adoption without justification, yet through adoption, we claim a closer, more intimate relationship with God, our Creator, as Father. And so he says, adoption is an abiding blessing. In God's family, there is absolute stability and security. The parent is entirely wise and good, and the child's position is permanently assured. And so we have a secure relationship with God by means of adoption. And then he talks about how adoption is the basis of our life, the basis of our whole Christian life. He says the entire Christian life should be understood in terms of its relationship to adoption, or uh, the idea of adoption or sonship should be the controlling thought or the lenses through which we view our entire Christian experience. And he gives us the example of Jesus. He says, just as Jesus always thought of himself as the Son of God in a unique sense, so he always thought of his followers as children of his heavenly Father members of the same divine family as himself. And so he's simply encouraging us to view our whole lives through this lens of being adopted sons and daughters of God. And so he says, just as the knowledge of his unique sonship controlled Jesus' living of his own life on earth, so he insists that the knowledge of our adoptive sonship must control our lives too. So seeing ourselves in this way as adopted children of God should govern the way that we live our lives. And he uses the Sermon on the Mount to help us understand this, to provide a framework for understanding our Christian lives through this lens as adopted sons and daughters of God. And he says the Sermon on the Mount is basically a royal family code. And so we have the the Sermon on the Mount and adoption providing us a a healthy perspective on our Christian conduct. So adoption is the basis of our Christian conduct. And he says there are three main principles in the Sermon on the Mount to help guide our conduct through this lens of adoption. One is to imitate our Father. So we see many teachings in the Sermon on the Mount where we are encouraged to imitate the character, the actions and attitudes of God, who is our Father, if we are in an adopted relationship with Him. Uh, Also, another controlling idea from the Sermon on the Mount is to glorify the Father. You know, just as a natural son or daughter wants to please and honor their father or their mother, so also we with God. God is our Father. We want to live our lives in such a way so as to bring Him honor. And then also to please the Father, uh, to do that which is, uh, that brings the Father joy, brings him happiness and pleasure. And so those are the controlling ideas of the Sermon on the Mount that, that govern our conduct. And all of them can be viewed through the lens of adoption. He says, uh, adoption also serves us as the basis for Christian prayer. So seeing ourselves as children of God orients the way that we think about prayer. 
Prayer then should not be thought of in terms of impersonal or mechanical terms as a technique for putting pressure on someone who otherwise might disregard you. And so in this sense, the, our Christian relationship with God is so different from that of the pagan religions that we even discussed in chapter 18 with the concept of propitiation, where uh, people in a pagan idea would have to try to manipulate the gods into doing what they wanted. Not so with our God, because he is our father. So prayer is not something that we use to try to pressure or manipulate God, uh, because our God is for us. So our God is already for us because of Christ and his atoning propitiatory sacrifice for us, God are, is already for us, and he is our father. We are adopted into his family, and so we may come freely and boldly uh, before him, being a part of his family. Uh, we may, um, God, because he's our father, he lovingly hears our prayers. But as a good father, he doesn't always give us what we want. Rather, he gives us what is good for us. He gives us what we need. And he often gives us what we should have asked for rather than what we actually asked for. Why? Because he's a wise, loving father. And then he talks about the life of faith. So adoption and particularly through uh, the, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the adoption relationship that we have with God gives us the basis for Christian conduct. That is how we live but also orients the way that we think of our relationship with God in prayer, how we can talk to him, we can come boldly and freely. But he also says that adoption orients our life of faith. So he says adoption is the basis of the life of faith, the life of trusting God for our needs as we put his kingdom and righteousness first. So faith is not foolhardiness or presumption, uh, there's a difference. In faith, uh, there may be times when we are tested as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus living in a hostile world. So that means that following Jesus then may mean that we forfeit some measure of worldly security or prosperity. But Jesus reminds us of what our status as adopted children of God promises. We are God's children. He will provide for us. And so he encourages us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to us. And then we come to uh, kind of the new section for our lesson tonight, which is the second half of chapter 19 on the theme of adoption. And he reminds us or shows us in this part of the chapter what adoption reveals to us. And he started out by reminding us about the theme of propitiation, where propitiation, even though it's only mentioned a handful of times in the New Testament, he made the argument in chapter 18 that even though it's only mentioned a few times, propitiation really is the focus. It is the central underlying concept that helps us to understand the whole work of Christ. And so he says propitiation is the nucleus or the focal point of the whole New Testament teaching on the saving work of Christ. Well, he says a similar thing about adoption, but now instead of the saving work of Christ, this has to do with the Christian life. So 
Propitiation is the centerpiece of the saving work of Christ. Adoption, again, only occurs a few times with specific reference to our relationship with God. Yet the concept of adoption and all of the different things that are related to it are all throughout the New Testament and are central to how we live, how we even perceive the Christian life. And so he says, if I were to sum up the teaching of the New Testament, it would be this, adoption through propitiation. So Christ has brought us near to God, uh, propitiated the wrath of God, atoned for our sin, pardoned us, justified us. Through that reconciled relationship, now we are adopted into the family of God. And so he says, uh, adoption shows us this great privilege. And he, he says, really, there are five things that adoption shows us in the New Testament. And he, the rest of the chapter is really focused on those five things. One is God's love. He says, our adoption shows us the greatness of God's love. There are really two biblical ways that God's love is described or measured. Uh, one is the cross of Christ. Uh, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. So uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the death of the cross. That whoever believes in him should have everlasting life and not perish. So uh, God commends or shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross of Christ is a, a, a primary way of describing the greatness, the immensity of God's love. But another one is the gift of sonship. In the New Testament, we are, we are told uh, to marvel in this concept that we are children of God, the gift of sonship. So he says in 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, almost as in an astounding, shocking claim. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so kind of in a, uh, a mind-blowing moment, just thinking about the fact that we are indeed children of God. He says, in the ancient world, the way adoption would often work is a well-to-do, childless man would adopt a young adult into his family, would adopt him as his son. But the reason they would wait till young adult time is to see what the character of this young person would be. Is this the kind of person uh, to be adopted to carry on my name, to carry on my legacy, and to receive my inheritance? Well, in the New Testament, the way we are adopted into the family of God is exactly the opposite. God doesn't adopt us into his family because of how good we are or because he's seen our character or that we are somehow worthy of carrying on his name. No, we are adopted in the family of God out of free love and grace, not because of anything that we have done. And so uh, J.I. Packer says in the chapter, adoption by its very nature is an art of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to. 
not because you are bound to. Similarly, God adopts us because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. So God's adoption of us is not based on who we are. We have nothing to bring. We have nothing to offer. God's adoption of us is out of his pure, free, unmerited, sovereign grace. So God's adoptive grace does not then stop with that initial act of adoption. So God loves us, adopts us into his family, but his love demonstrated toward us doesn't stop there. The establishing of the child's status as a member of the family, that's just the beginning. The father continues to show love to us throughout our whole lives by which he wins our love. So he shows us love and that brings us then to a a deeper and deeper longing to love him in return. So the prospect before the adopted children of God then is an eternity of love of God, not only loving us in the beginning to adopt us, but then to continue to express that love to us for all of eternity. He says, it's almost like a fairy story. The reigning monarch adopts waifs and strays to make princes of them. But he says, praise God, this is not a fairy story. It is hard and solid fact founded on the bedrock of free and sovereign grace He says it's almost a story too good to be true, but it is true. And it's the story that God wrote, that he he takes uh, sinners, criminals, rejects, rebels, and not only forgives them, but adopts them into the royal family and makes them his own. It is an incredible thought. And so adoption shows us the greatness of the love of God. Uh, But adoption also shows us the glory of the Christian hope that we have. And he reminds us that New Testament Christianity is a religion of hope. It is a faith that is forward-looking. We are looking forward to the fulfillment of our salvation, the fulfillment of God's promises. He says our Christian adoption teaches us to think of our hope not as a possibility or a likelihood, but as a guaranteed certainty, because it is a promised inheritance. And in this sense, biblical hope is different than the way that we usually talk about hope. We'll say things like, well, I hope this happens. I hope so. Maybe, you know, I I wish it would. But when the Bible talks about hope, it uses hope in a more secure sense, in in a settled promise. Uh, because it is an inheritance that has been promised to us by a uh, faithful God. So God's adoption of us uh, makes us his heirs. And so guarantees to us, as our right, we might say, the inheritance that he has in store for us. So he adopts into 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 his family, and then he promises us this future hope. That is the inheritance he has reserved for us. The doctrine of adoption tells us that the sum and substance of our promised inheritance is a share in the glory of Christ. We shall be made like our elder brother, that is Christ, in every way, at every point. And sin and mortality, the double corruption of God's good work and the moral and spiritual fears, respectively, will be things of the past. 
we will be resurrected to be like Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The likeness of Christ that we will share in will not just be in terms of character and behavior and our mind, but also in the physical aspect as well. In other words, our bodies will be renewed, glorified to be like Christ's resurrected body. So Romans 8.23, Paul, in talking about this, says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Notice that. Our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the fulfillment of our hope through adoption is the full redemption, the full glorification, the full renewal of even our physical bodies. So when we think then of Jesus exalted in glory, in the fullness of the joy for which he endured the cross, we should always remind ourselves that everything he has will someday be shared with us. For it is our inheritance no less than his. We are among the many sons whom God is bringing to glory. Hebrews 2.10. And God's promise to us and his work in us are not going to fail. That is an amazing thought. That is a blessed hope. The doctrine of adoption tells us that the experience of heaven will be of a family gathering. So not only will we share in the glory of Christ, but our adopt our adoption and the hope that we have through adoption promises us a family gathering in heaven. As the great host of the redeemed meet together in face-to-face fellowship with their Father God and Jesus their brother, he says this is the deepest and clearest idea of heaven that the Bible gives us. That is true. Sometimes we think about heaven, we think about streets of gold, pearl gates, but the most glorious thing about heaven is the fellowship that we will have with God the Father, with God the Son, with Christ, our Savior, our brother, and with the whole family of God, every redeemed son and daughter of God, together in a grand family reunion, we might say. That's what heaven's all about, that God will be with us, he will be our God, and we will be his people. He says, what will make heaven to be heaven is the presence of Jesus and of a reconciled divine Father who loves us for Jesus' sake, no less than he loves Jesus himself. To see and know and love and be loved by the Father and the Son, in company with the rest of God's vast family, is the whole essence of the Christian hope. That is what heaven, a new and then also a new heavens and a new earth, is all about. It is about eternal fellowship in the family of God a loving family of God forever and ever. So we we have that hope because we're adopted into his family. He says also that our adoption into the family of God gives us the key to understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a doctrine that has had a lot of confusion about it, especially in the 20th century with the rise of Pentecostalism, charismaticism, a lot of uh, wrong, confused ideas about the Holy Spirit. He says, too many have a confused understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
rather than being content with the biblical description of his ministry, they long for, they go out seeking for that which is more experiential, radical, mystical, something they can feel. And it, it's a it's a pursuit that often ends in uh, failure because they keep seeking it. They feel like they have it, then it's gone. And then they, they go seeking for something again. But the key to understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not through these experiential things. The key to understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit is through this theme of adoption, that we are adopted into the family of God. He says, this quest for an inward explosion rather than an inward communion or an inward fellowship shows deep misunderstanding of the Spirit's ministry. The vital truth to be grasped here is that the Spirit is given to Christians as the Spirit of adoption. And in all his ministry to Christians, he acts as the Spirit of adoption. So he says that's the lens through which we should view the adoptive ministry of, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we are adopted into the family of God, and he is the Spirit of adoption. So his task and purpose throughout then is to make Christians realize with increasing clarity the meaning of their filial or family relationship with God in Christ, that they are sons of God, and to lead them into an ever deeper response to God in this relationship. That's the Spirit's ministry. So he says, by considering the Spirit's ministry through him being the Spirit of adoption, his work then has three aspects that help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One, he makes us and keeps us conscious that we are God's children by free grace through Jesus Christ. So a part, an essential aspect of the Spirit's ministry in us is to remind us, to draw attention to us, to make clear to us that we are God's children. And that we are God's children, not because of anything we've done, but because of God's grace and mercy. Another aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, in terms of this of being the spirit of adoption, is he moves us to look to God as to a father, showing toward him the respectful boldness and unlimited trust that is natural to children secure in an adored father's love. So the Spirit reminds us that we're God's children. Then the Spirit helps us to go before our Father with this mindset that we belong to Him and that He loves us as a Father loves His children. He also impels us to act up to our position as royal children by manifesting the family likeness that is conforming to the image of Christ, furthering the family welfare that is loving the brethren, and maintaining the family honor that is seeking God's glory. And he says, this is the work of sanctification. So uh, this is the, the Spirit's work in us, in, in which, since we're now adopted into the family of God, the Spirit is helping us, moving in us, working in us to show forth the family likeness that we are sons and daughters of God. And that's what the ministry of sanctification is, to make us more and more like God, more and more like Christ, our brother. So this is a part of his ministry as the spirit of adoption. So he says about this ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is not as we strain after feelings and experiences, but as we seek God himself, looking to him as our father. 
prizing his fellowship and finding in ourselves an increasing concern to know and please him that the reality of the Spirit's ministry becomes visible in our lives. So to understand the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives, he says we need to understand adoption because he is the spirit of adoption. He reminds us we're God's children. He causes us to long to go before our Father and to approach him with boldness in love. And he also is continually working on us, shaping, molding us in the image of Christ. Then he says holiness. Adoption also shows us the meaning and the motives of gospel holiness. He points out the distinction between gospel holiness, the way the Puritans would have described it, versus legal holiness. Gospel holiness is an authentic Christian living. It it springs from love and gratitude to God. So it springs from the heart. But a, a legal holiness is what we might say a Pharisaic holiness. It's more external. It consists of forms, routines, and outward appearances. And it's maintained from self-regarding motives. That's a legal holiness. But what the Spirit is working in us through adoption is a gospel holiness, a true holiness that comes from the heart. And so gospel holiness then is this, consistently living out our filial, that is our sonship, relationship with God, into which the gospel brings us. It is the expressing of one's adoption into the family of God. A child of God living as a child of God, true to his Father, to his Savior, and to himself. He says gospel holiness is living as a son of God and all that that entails. Knowing that we are sons of God, living out the family likeness and bringing honor to the family. He says the adoptive relationship, which displays God's grace so vividly, that adoptive relationship itself provides the motive for this authentically holy living. So adoption is gives us the pattern, but it also gives us the motive. So in other words, we live like a daughter or son of God because we are a son or daughter of God. So we have the pattern. We live like God because we're a son or daughter of God. But we also have the motive. We want to do this. We, we delight to do this. We have a, a yearning to do this because we are a son or daughter of God. We belong to the family. So 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. There's that amazing concept again. We are the children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's that hope that we were talking about. Adoption gives us a future hope of inheritance, of the redemption of our bodies. We will be like Christ. But then notice verse 3. All who have this hope in him, that is in Christ, purify themselves just as he is pure. So in other words, this framework of being adopted as sons and daughters of God, it gives us the pattern, but it also gives us the motive.
the reason. We, we have this hope in ourselves, therefore we want to purify ourselves. We want to be holy because we belong to the family of God. So the children know, Jaya Packer says, that holiness is their father's will for them and that it is both a means, a condition, and a constituent of their happiness here and hereafter. And because they love their father, they actively seek the fulfilling of his beneficent purpose. In other words, holiness is God's goal for us. Being a child of God, seeking holiness is what truly makes us happy and fulfilled. Therefore, we as children of God desire for that. We long for that. We have that longing to be like God. And a part of this process of holiness is the Father's loving discipline. The Father's discipline is a loving part of the process of moving us toward holiness, which is our ultimate destiny. That's something to be uh, re- remind ourselves of, is that holiness is where we are headed. That is our ultimate destiny as a child of God. That is what we will be in glory. Right now, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and moving us toward that holiness. And we, as a child of God, we want to live in the pattern of our Father. Times when we don't, we fail. The Father comes and He lovingly disciplines. He lovingly chastens. Why? Because He is moving us toward our ultimate destiny, which is to be like Christ, because we will see Him as He is. Hebrews 12, 6, and 7 teaches us about this loving fatherly discipline. Because the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His Son, endure hardship then as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's a part of the process of God making us holy. Why? Because we're part of his family. We're his children. And he disciplines us as a father would, as a loving father would. So adoption into the family of God for the purpose of gospel holiness helps us then better understand Romans 8.28. What is Romans 8.28? That in all things... God works for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that? Romans 8.29, that we would be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So everything that God is doing, all of these things that God is working in our lives, both the difficult as well as the good, they're all a part of his loving plan to make us more and more resembling the family likeness, the likeness of Christ. So, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He also reminds us that adoption into the family of God for the purpose of gospel holiness also helps us better understand the place of obedience in the Christian life. And this comes up from time to time. You know, what is the role of obedience or the the role of, of obeying the commands of God in the Christian life? Well, certainly it's not to earn salvation. Justification frees one forever from the need to keep the law or to try to as the means of earning life. So we don't earn life 
by keeping the law or even trying to keep the law. We can't earn eternal life that way. But it is equally true, he says, that adoption lays on one the abiding obligation to keep the law as the means of pleasing one's newfound father. Law-keeping is the family likeness of God's children. In other words, we cannot be saved by obedience or law-keeping. But now having been adopted into the family of God, we desire, we long to please our Father. It is uh, living according to God's commands is living out the family likeness. So that is adoption helps us better understand the role of obedience in the Christian life. Another thing that adoption helps us understand is assurance in the scriptures. He says, our adoption gives us the clue that we need to see our way through the problem of assurance. And this has been a huge topic throughout church history. And in the chapter, he briefly walks us through some of the different viewpoints, some of the different controversies throughout church history over uh, what it means to be assured of our faith. Um, It ultimately comes down to these questions. He says, what is assurance? What is it? Um, Whom does God assure? Does he assure all believers? Just some of them? Uh, When he assures, what does he assure us of? Does he assure us that we're saved, that we are guaranteed heaven? Does he assure us that we're his children? What does he assure us of? And by what means is assurance given? How, How does this assurance come to us? He says, adoption... This doctrine of adoption can help us understand this. So, if God in love has made Christians his children, and if he is perfect as a father, he says two things would seem to follow. One, the family relationship must be an abiding one, lasting forever. Perfect parents do not cast off their children. Christians may act the prodigal, but God will not cease to act the prodigal's father. So we may stray, but God will never abandon us as our father. Another point, and he says, uh, this is uh, comes to us from Romans 8, 29 and 30. Uh, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, everyone that God predestined to be the firstborn or to be the many brothers of Christ, the firstborn, they're going to be there at the end. He's called them. He's predestined them. He's justified them. He's going to glorify them. God does not forsake his children. Another point that flows from God being a perfect father is this. God will go out of his way to make his children feel his love for them and know their privilege and security as members of his family. Adopted children need assurance that they belong, and a perfect parent will not withhold it. So having been adopted into the family, God is going to welcome us, but also make us feel welcome and make us feel like a part of the family, assured as a part of the family. And that's where the doctrine of assurance comes in. So we have Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So one of the aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit as being the spirit of adoption is he testifies, he himself living within us, he testifies in conjunction with our spirit so that we then have a dual witness to the assurance of our faith. We have the Holy Spirit and we have our internal consciousness that the Spirit is communicating with to remind us, to assure us that we are God's children. He quotes from Robert Haldane in the book, and he says, The witness of our spirit becomes a reality as, quote, The Holy Spirit enables us to ascertain our sonship from being conscious of and discovering in ourselves the true marks of a renewed state. So he says the Holy Spirit works through our spirit, and and our spirit then becomes conscious of the fact that we belong to God and that we are renewed, that we have been born again, regenerated. He says this is an inferential assurance. We infer from certain things that we are God's children being a conclusion drawn from the fact that one knows the gospel. So we know the gospel, we trust Christ, we bring forth works that are that flow from repentance and manifest the instincts of regenerate man. Those are inferences that we are children of God. But then Robert Haldane also goes on to say the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit, though, in a distinct and immediate testimony and also with our spirit in a concurrent testimony. In other words, there are two testimonies. There's the spirit speaking uh, through our spirit, but there's also the spirit himself testifying of his own. So he says this is immediate assurance, the direct work of the spirit in the regenerate heart, coming in to supplement the God-prompted witness of our own spirit. So he says we have a twofold concurrent witness, our spirit and the Holy Spirit. He says, so the truth about assurance comes out like this. Our Heavenly Father intends his children to know his love for them and their own security in his family. He would not be the perfect father if he did not want this and if he did not act to bring it about. So he says the father welcomes us into the family, but he also wants to assure us and make us feel welcome make us feel secure in his family. His action takes the form of making the dual witness that we have described part of the regular experience of his children. Thus, he leads them to rejoice in his love. Now, when he says this regular experience, he also points out in the chapter that it can ebb and flow. There are times when our hearts feel more assured. There are times when they feel less assured. But there's always this presence of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are God's children. So he says, we may strengthen the inferential aspect of our assurance by making use of the doctrinal and ethical criteria of 1 John. So you read through 1 John, and John gives us his purpose in writing the letter. He says, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. So it is the whole purpose of 1 John is to give a sense of assurance, of confidence for those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And John lays out a few different criteria in his letter of 1 John that help us infer that we are God's children. One of those is, do we believe in Jesus Christ? Do we believe that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh? John says that is a true mark of a Christian. He gives us another criteria. He says, do you love the brethren? Do you love the family of God? He says, the person who says he loves God but doesn't love his brother or sister, that's that, that person is lying. There's not true faith in that person. So one of the inferences that we can draw is, do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? That is an indication that we have a new, new birth. Another one in 1 John is, uh, are we seeking to live in obedience to Christ? Uh, 1 John 3, the one who is born of God does not go on continuing in sin. And so there are these doctrinal and ethical criteria that John gives us that we can infer from them some measure of assurance. And we can strengthen this inferential aspect of our assurance by looking at those criteria of 1 John. But then he goes on and reminds us the source of our assurance, however, is not our inferences as such, but the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who assures us, convincing us that we are God's children and that the saving love and promises of God apply directly to us. So it is the Spirit's role as the Spirit of adoption to assure us that we are children of God. And he says this is this whole topic, this whole theme of adoption is what he calls a great secret. And the reason he calls it a great secret is because this doctrine of adoption has not received the attention that it deserves in Christian history and Christian thought, but even in our own Christian lives and our thinking. And he says this doctrine of, of adoption, that we are children of God, needs to be the focus the lens through which we see our whole Christian life. And so he concludes the chapter with some questions. Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. He says that is the thought that we should have every day to remind us of these truths of adoption. He reminds us of a few other questions to help us think through how adoption can be the framework through which we view the whole Christian life. So things like, do I understand my adoption? Do I know what that means? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of my privilege as a child of God? Have I sought full assurance of my adoption? Do I daily dwell on the love of God to me? Do I go looking to the scriptures and to the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, reminding me, assuring me that I'm God's child? Do I treat God as my Father in heaven, loving, honoring, and obeying Him, seeking and welcoming His fellowship, and trying in everything to please Him as a human parent would want his child to do? So am I my thinking of God as my Father and wanting to live my life through that lens? 
do I think of Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord, as my brother too, bearing to me not only a divine authority, but also a divine human sympathy as a part of my family? And do I think daily how close he is to me, how completely he understands me because he lived in this world, and how much, as my kinsman redeemer, he cares for me? Have I learned to hate the things that displease my father? Am I sensitive to the evil things to which he is sensitive? Do I make a point of avoiding them, lest I grieve him? Do I look forward daily to that great family occasion when the children of God will finally gather in heaven before the throne of God, their father, and of the Lamb, their brother and their Lord? Have I felt the thrill of this hope? That Do I long for that day? Do I long for that heavenly family reunion? Do I love my Christian brothers and sisters with whom I live day by day in a way that I shall not be ashamed of when in heaven I think back over it? Do I love them as my family? Am I proud of my father and of his family to which by his grace I belong? Does the family likeness appear in me? Am I living like a child of God, like a brother of Christ? If not, why not? And so these are some questions he gives us to remind us of what it means to live as an adopted son or daughter of God. And so I hope this chapter in Knowing God by J.A. Packer has been helpful. And uh, I hope that it'll be just a good uh, reminder to us of the great blessing that we've been given to be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so may we seek to live uh, our lives that way. Let's pray together. Thank you for these times, Father, that we have to study knowing God and to think about your attributes and to think about all the marvelous things that you've done for us. And as we've uh, thought about uh, tonight, uh, just thinking about um, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and your grace in adopting us into your family. God, I pray that that would as uh, Jaya Packer calls us to do, I pray that that would help orient our thinking, that we would see ourselves this way, day by day, as your children, loved by you, and that we would love you as our Father. Bless us, Father, as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.